This is episode 15 of Design Discipline, a conversation with Ron Walkery. Ron is a professor of design at Simon Fraser University's School of Interactive Arts and Technology in Canada. He's also a professor holding the chair of Design for More Than Human-Centered Worlds in the Industrial Design Department at Eindhoven University of Technology in the Netherlands. He's the founder of the design research studio Everyday Design Studio, or EDS for short, where he works together with Will Odom and an evolving cast of around a dozen grad students producing multidisciplinary design research. Specifically, Ron and his team work on practical design projects as well as philosophical projects dealing with human-technology relations and post-humanism, which are interesting topics that we discuss in this episode. Ron recently published the book Things We Could Design for More Than Human-Centered Worlds via MIT Press, where he packaged his research done over many years on post-humanist design rather than human-centered design, which brings non-human stakeholders, nature, climate, biological diversity into the focus of design methodology. You can enjoy this conversation as a video on YouTube or as a podcast. So go ahead and download and subscribe to our podcast. Like and subscribe in our YouTube channel. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram as at Design Discipline. And become a member on our website, designdiscipline.com, to access our next level of resources. As you enjoy our conversation with Ron Wakari, Professor of Design. I actually wanted to ask you about your personal story. This is not something that you talk about in your papers and books, obviously, because they are <laughs> academic. And I've uh, actually, I don't think I've ever seen you talk about your, your background in a recorded interview because I've seen a bunch of your presentations and things. But I know that there are some interesting stepping stones that you've had until you got to this point in your career. So how did your life and education and your work uh, transpire to end up as a, as a design professor? Like how, how did your relationship to design evolve in the process? Have you been a designer or, or how did it go for you? Yeah, great question. And I think, um, you're right. I haven't really talked about this. It, it, it's so it's maybe I don't, you tell me when the story gets too long because it's not a straight line. So it's, it's uh, uh, you know, I think, okay, it's not a straight line, but, the, but I think the thing is that I have one thing that I think goes through it is that this idea of being creative in making things and creative right. with technology, and then it became technologies and then being critical about the things, um, that, that, that I make, um, and, you know, so I started out as I wanted to be a painter. Oh, uh, wow. And, and, and that's, yeah. So I started with my, I'm sorry, I'm getting text messages. No, that's okay. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, yeah. So I, I, I wanted to be a painter. And, wow. And, and even that's not a sort of a straight line story that the particular kind of painting I really became interested in um, was actually uh, sort of conceptual art and painting. Uh, wow. and this goes back when I to, to when I was an, an undergraduate student. And, and where was this, arts by the way? So this was in Nova Scotia. It was at an art school called the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design, which sure. was actually quite famous for conceptual art. Uh, but I I went and I while there I studied with a German artist. His name is Gerhard Richter, sure. and he's actually quite known for th this idea of combining conceptual art and painting and, and doing sort of paintings about paintings. So right. He could at the same same time, he could paint, he would paint realist paintings, kind of like photographs that were slightly blurred. Sure. At the same time, painting large, very painterly kind of abstract paintings. And it was really kind of a way of, so you had this sort of distancing and conceptual understanding of, of what it meant to be a painter. 
But at the same time, these paintings were incredibly well kind of, cra- I mean, not just crafted, but they were just, they were aesthetic. They were very material. They, 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 they had actually an emotional quality to them. So there was a kind of duality to them. And that really struck me as something kind of, well, quite wonderful about painting, that you could open up a kind of space to think about not just what the painting showed, but the act of painting and what painting was about. And, you know, from, from there, I kind of, I, I moved to New York to become an artist. Wow. And that was, you know, I, I, I set out to, that's what I was going to do. That, that's like a stereotype, like people moving to New York, moving to LA, to these places to become an artist, Absolutely. an actor, whatever. So you've actually done it. I actually did it. Yeah, How'd it yeah, go? Yeah, so that was my, yeah. So, uh, well, you know, I mean, I think it was actually quite, I mean, I, 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 th- at that point, you know, for something that as a young person, you commit yourself to, and then you see a whole community of people where it's taken, you know, that are seriously committed to what it means to make art and what it means to make contemporary art. And the, the, the value of being in New York is that there's so many artists. And of course, that's also the challenge. Uh, but you get involved in, 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 in the communities very quickly and, and, and you get to learn the difference between what you sort of learned in school and what the contemporary reality is. And that's the, the practice and the profession and the community of, of, of making art. Um, but at the same time, there are other things going on, namely, you know, new technologies were coming out and internet technologies. You know, this was a time when literally, that we, when, I, when I first was in New York was before, there was such a thing as the web. You know, I mean, we had ARPANET, we had like building boards. Oh, you have to literally, so this is oh, all yeah. pre-web. What, what is the yeah, early year days. that we're talking about here? So this would have been, uh, early nineties. Okay. So late eight, sorry, when was it late? Yeah. Early nineties. Wow. So early nineties, late, late eighties, early nineties. Uh-huh. Then but anyway, this, this idea of technology then became a, an issue in terms of art. And I actually became quite interested in media art and technology and art. Yeah. Um, and also shifted, you know, I, I was in some sense also being kind of disillusioned with the art world. It really shifted to an interest, much more of an interest in collect, in collaborative work mm. rather than in the individual work of being an artist. And so working with people on technologies and, and working with, uh, on, on how this, uh, you know, on how to make art perhaps through media. And we, I formed a, a media art collective, but at the same time, I, this was also my real first encounter with design that you actually had to shape things to support other people. And this was kind of a way of collaborating. So help artists by making tools and, 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 and creating software and so on. Then I opened up a, a, a design consultancy. So I had two oh. running a design consultancy and, and, and this BD art collective and began working a lot of my clients actually in our, our uh, we had a number of different clients, but we had a lot of clients that were museums. Um, and they were really interested in how, of course, how this technologies were shaping art but also shaping how to exhibit art and what, how is shaping the institutions wow. like themselves, like museums. You know, what does it mean now when you can have this kind of connected, distributed way of, of viewing and experiencing art? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't necessarily need to have that, um, uh, you know, the analog going to the museum kind of experience. Or, of course, things have changed, everything, but there was a, mm-hmm. I mean, in the chaos of it all, the uncertainty of it all was a lot of opportunity and a lot of excitement. So that actually pushed me really into a different kind of practice, which was really more of a kind of design practice. I also then took on a position at Parsons, the School of Design, to really help develop, start up the digital design department. Um, and then I moved to, back to Canada, because originally Canadian, to help start up a new technical university. And I had really had no idea of academia. Yeah. I, I literally hadn't, like, I mean, I obviously went to school, but the idea of being an academic in the university sense was not something I ever wow. really entertained. But 
I then learned, you know, it, in, I looked at it like research was a creative, critical platform like the Media Art Collective I had yeah. or like an art studio. Or it, To me, it was almost the same thing, but it was of a different scale. And I was also really, as, I mean, I think the thing that struck me about design, unlike art, was the immediate impact it had on people and yeah. really the everydayness of it, how it shapes like I was talking about how it shapes institutions like museums, shapes sure. how we might experience like it was it was so obvious and immediate and particularly because of the, the technologies, but design really had this sort of fundamental impact uh, on the world that I that design uh, that art seemed more kind of latent or just took more you know it was more complicated yeah. um, and then the idea that I could perhaps as an academic create this platform through research was how I saw it. And then, of course, I realized I needed to do a PhD sure. um, to really kind of fully kind of uh, want to credentialize. And also, I mean, you know, re I mean, I think, you know, what I, which is I learned, you know, to get the skills to do research, the competences to do research, it goes sure. beyond credibility to ask questions slightly differently, to pursue them slightly differently. But they were still the same kind of questions. But, you know, I think this speaks to me learning what it meant to do research. But my, my PhD program was a really interesting, very chaotic kind of experience. It was, it was called Kaya Star. It was um, led by um, a person named Roy Ascot, who was actually quite known in the early days of media art and telematic. He, he, did, he did art at a distance, so sort of what was known as telematic media. Oh, yeah, okay. Early, and this was pre-internet. Wow. So how do you do this art at a distance and work through network technologies? Um, but he had this idea where he, 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 at the time, there were not many opportunities for designers or for artists to do PhDs. But as the technologies and complexities were, were getting more complex, there was a need to kind of dig in more deeply of this kind of research that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. Just kind of do things, I suppose, at the level of depth of what would require a PhD. So we created a, a PhD program for um, media, for, for, for artists and for designers mm -hmm. that were typically quite well-known mid-career. Um, so for example, and of course this speaks to the period Eduardo Kack was an artist who he actually worked with a, I guess, a biotechnology firm in France to wow. create a fluorescent rabbit to show this combination between technology and Whoa. nature. He was exploring the, the relationships. Um, Char Davies was another sort of artist designer. She actually was a founder of Soft Image, 3D animation um, software. Um, but she also did her work was in VR. And, and to this day, I mean, this would have been uh, in maybe late nineties. So this day, I think she, I mean, to me, probably some of the best VR work that, that I had ever seen, which was very simple. Um, uh, terms of there wasn't, you know, the technologies when I was advanced then. Also a colleague that I work with now, Take the Ship Wars, who was one of the first to kind of do works in somesthetics, which is now something that people, at least in academic research on design and HCI are very interested in. Yeah. But we would, um, Roy would organize, we didn't really have a place where we would go. He would organize these mini conferences. We were almost like a traveling caravan. We would literally, he would say, it was almost like a little bit like Mission Impossible. You would get a so, message, an email saying, in two, in, in four weeks, we are going to meet in this place in Brazil. And you had to find money and ways to get there. Wow. And we would do these 10 day residencies um, three times a year. So just to like resituate ourselves, this is the late 90s, I presume. And so this site is late 90s, early 2000s. What, what is like the institution that you're in? Which university are you working oh, it's in? It's called Kaya Star. Kaya Star, And it was okay. based at, it was, that was the PhD program. It was based at, um, between University of Wales and Plymouth University in the UK. 
Oh wow! So that's where. So um, my actual degree is from is from uh, Plymouth. But you were uh, located. You were residing in Canada during this time. I was residing in Canada. Many people, all the people in the program were from all over the world. Oh yeah, and we okay. would get together. And do a, <laughs> so we would get together three times a year huh. for uh, you know ten days at a time and try to figure out what this whole PhD <laughs> research was about. <laughs> That's it so was cool. such a, 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 a different, yeah. you know, very different than, than most PhD programs. And now, of course, uh, it, there it, it, it's much easier to do a PhD in design or a yeah. PhD in in fine arts. Still one of the more like obscure PhDs though, like it's not chemistry or something, you know, which people have like a, yes. it's, it's like more common. A PhD in design is more rare. And uh, what I've observed uh, is that it, a, a good PhD in design, which, you know, really contributes uh, to you in, in many dimensions uh, is rare. It's not in every place in the world. It's not even in every country in the world that you can find one. So you really have to sort of chase these things and go to where they are done properly if you if you really want to uh, advance in this field i guess yeah so you can imagine then the late 90s and early 2000 where you know there were mm. even fewer opportunities and also institutions were not necessarily um ready to accept the idea that there would be this kind of phd level of a discipline like design yeah so hence you had what you know you need someone like Roy ascott to create the kind of program that he did at that time i was actually covering uh, this topic in a, a late episode i was i made an episode about research through design and uh, the interesting thing there was how it kind of became an idea in, in interaction design research in our academic communities it was a thing that uh, kind of became prominent in the early 2000s and 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 late or, or like 2010s i guess um, and before that, it was much harder, I, I guess, to do design work and have that accepted as academic research. But that, I guess, that idea of research to design maybe laid the foundations of that. Uh, was that your observation as well? Was that an idea that you were like taking up at the time? Or were there other ideas, other foundations, other theories that allowed you to um, integrate yourself in the academic establishment? Yeah, so, you know, I think that there's kind of, uh, we first of all, I'll say in terms of research to design, you know, that actually, in, as, as an articulation, came quite late. Um, you know, for me, I mean, for, I mean, I was all, at that point already quite involved in academic research yeah. in terms of design, and, and that spoke to um, some of the, in, you know, I think, so for example, you know, I think I ended up moving and doing a lot of research in the field of human-computer interaction, which intersected with computer science, and I think became home for a lot of people that did design research and could piggyback off of computer science, so to speak, that it okay. was, you know, an established discipline. But within that human-computer interaction, the role of design was always fairly an, um, an ambivalent Fair. relationship to, say, the science of psychology and the science of cognitive science or, you know, where did design fit in, in, in terms of that over its methodologies and how could it make valid claims to knowledge? So research through design, you know, I think that would have been like, at least as articulated as we commonly see it now, I, I guess would be like 2000. So this period between yeah. 2000, what, uh, I'm losing my dates now, 2005, six, 2007, I think is like, there is the famous paper by John Zimmerman and, and, uh, for Lizzie and. Right. So when I'm thinking of it, there was a read, there was a workshop in, um, at, 
CHI, which is the Conference for yeah. Human Computer Interaction in Vienna. And I believe that was like 2005, 2006. It kind of preceded mm. it around the time that that paper was, was it might have even been, been the year before that. And there was yeah. also a paper published by Daniel Ballman, yeah. which was really important within H human computer interaction, which also spoke about design-oriented research versus research-oriented design. Yeah. So with a large part, that became like many theories. The practice was already there, but it became a way of articulating and conceptualizing and in some sense rationalizing a practice that was, for many people, already well-established. It was also a form of way to communicate this to other people. Yeah. Um, and of course, then I think in, in research design, there was also the constructive design research book by Ilpo and others that I think also popularized the idea. Yeah, somewhere. But in my time, you know, when I, I was it. doing work, yeah, we were, there were other, you know, people were very interested in practice-based research. And so there were, there were other models that came out of performance. This one uh, too, oh, I have. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but there are other models of doing research that were related to create, creative practices. So they came out of uh, music, they came out of um, dance, they came out of the performing arts. And, and these kind of practice-based research uh, was really the, the sort of term before mm. Uh, research to design. That is, you gain knowledge through practice. And that's what I would draw on. And sort of my initial PhD research was exactly that, was really looking at my own practice yeah. of designing things and how that could be, uh, how knowledge could be generated through the very practice of doing design or, yeah. or, or being creative. I, you know, this is prior to the terminology of research to design. And then uh, you finished the PhD. Did you then like immediately find the uh, uh... The, the, the post at SFU that you're, you have right now and then proceed there or were there intermediate steps? No. So I actually had, I actually finished my PhD while I had, I already had my post at SFU. Oh, cool. At that time. And when I finished my PhD, but you know, it's a question of, I think, you know, and I think we, we you, you do have this where you have sort right. of professors of practice and, 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 or, and there were those professors who, who focus on teaching and it. And right. I think that that's, I, I still, you know, I go back to, I, I strongly believe in the fact, the ability to do research through making things and through practice. And so I think that that's undervalued and, and that it's, it's a good argument for why people should, are doing a high level of research. But like I said before, there were, I, I did it because I knew that, you know, you, you, there's like soft, you know, the idea of having credibility amongst peers. Um, I mean, to, to, to be in amongst those who you're competing with, in a sense, or competing with intellectually at least, trying to share ideas yeah. and having a PhD, you know, puts you on a more level playing field. But like I said before, there also, I did learn, I mean, you know, there are real competences and skills about doing research, which are different than the research I was doing before my PhD. When you say practice, what does that involve? Like, are you, do you spend time at the laser cutter or... Uh, is it interviewing people and collecting like, you know, user UX design insights kind of things? What, what are the actual tactics and the, the physical actual things that you're doing when you talk about your practice? Like what kinds of objects uh, or things have you designed, for example? Yeah, so my practice, you know, I think ranges quite a bit. Um, and, and, and that's partly through the collaboration, but that I, that I engage in and through the, I work, you know, through the studio and we have different skill sets within the studio, but, you know, but it, it is, it is based on, you know, in some sense, some fairly traditional work around form giving sure. that you would do in design and, and whether that form, you know, then, then, then that, you know, we've done this through different materials, you know, through ceramics, for example, through, um, 
uh, through text, excuse me, through textiles. Mm. We've also done it through software, through um, sensing technologies, creating uh, um, um, sensing environments. Mm. And to me, I, really, I like to be fairly fluid uh, about that. It's really the question I want to ask. And at the heart of this, uh, of course, are some really prototyping with, with electronics, whether, you know, we do mm. our early prototyping in Arduino, for example. Uh, we do a lot of early, you know, we do a lot of physical prototyping through um, 3D printing, but you also, mm-hmm. in through the textile work, you do it in samples. Um, so the practice is, at the heart of it, I think the process it is very much a kind of design process of making, going through the ideas of what is it you want to do, or the ideation, ideational ideas, who are you doing it for, mm-hmm. or why are you doing it? What, what, what do you need to gather in terms of the materials and the techniques? I'm certainly working within the confines of doing technology or digital technology-based design. So there's almost, there's almost always a computational part, and that can go from, you know, that includes from machine learning to network connectivity to, you know, it's, um, just the basic, you know, programming that you might have to do for uh, to to manage processing on uh, you know within a particular we design a lot of tangible artifacts so so that we might do within the particular um, artifact or thing that we're designing yeah. so it is quite the range I think it, it it's somewhere between tangible computing product design software engineering I don't know how else to explain oh we need gain but at the same time and I really want to push this because yeah. I think there's such a you know, my, my biggest concern in a lot of technology, a lot of design thinking, and I don't mean design thinking to sort of design thinking, I just mean that more generically, mm-hmm. is, is we actually restrict ourselves in terms of what we want to work with and what we think the outcomes are of design are rather than open it up. Mm-hmm. And so to me, sometimes to look back to prior um, materials or what I've been called technology, ceramics as a technology in the broad sense, mm-hmm. or, or a lot of digital technologies are really in, indebted to early work that was done with in weaving and textiles through the yeah. Jacquard Loom. So we are doing work with textiles. And again, it just kind of broadens the remit, the kind of understanding yeah. of what can come out of the act of designing. So speaking of things that you've been designing, uh, you have a book that, that I have yes. here. Actually, it's signed by you. Uh, so thank <laughs> you for that. Uh, and it's called You're Things awesome. That We Could Design. So yes. And and the the subtitle I guess is for more than human centered worlds. Um, yeah. What is the core message of this book? And I've I've actually read this book, so I have some idea of what you're saying. But I I think you are um, more practiced in in articulating what this book is about. So I'll let you uh, describe to me what you're trying to say uh, in here. Yeah. So I. What I'm trying to say is, what happens if we think beyond human-centered design or user-centered design? And why might we do that? Um, and I think in many ways that I see, like in this through discussions with design students and young designers and the questions around design is a kind of urgency. It's a question for everybody, but it certainly also impacts design. Questions around climate crisis, the questions around inequities in the world, the questions around what more can design, what is the good in design? And I think in some ways, perhaps 
we've explored within the model of human-centered design in a way that we've hit certain limits, but also has been at a cost. So we know it's been at a cost in terms of sustainability. We know it's been at a cost of who can use the technologies that are designed and the inequities that that creates. Uh, we know it comes at a cost in terms of, say, replicating certain values um, and, 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 and not others. And that creates some of the you know, issues we have faced around racism or decolonization, et cetera. When you kind of probe deeper, you see behind human-centered design is a broader concept, broader concept of human exceptionalism or what we could what we philosophically have called yeah. humanism. And as you know, the book has grounded a lot in, in, in philosophy. Yeah. And humanism is that, that kind of Western European enlightenment notion, that an idea. And, you know, it was a... He was moving away from religion and trying yeah. to see the power of, of, of human reason as a way to progress and make a better world. And so humans were above everything else on this kind of human exceptionalism. And that human exceptionalism, I, you know, contributes to ideas like human-centered design and some of the cost. So the question I ask is, can we think past that? We have more yeah. than human, which what does that mean? That means thinking differently about the fact that we are not the only ones who control things or other agencies. Technologies seem to be out of control because they actually shape us as much as we shape them. What we design doesn't just impact human experience or human productivity or human use. It has consequences on other living beings, other species. We cohabit a world. Uh, and, and so in that way, design is very relational and relational beyond humans. And that's something I think human-centered design does not account for well. And so... Coming back and thinking through, I think the, this my belief I have is that design is always asking the question of what is the good in design or how to design well. And, and, and to me, the question that I, 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 in the book, I, I, I take this notion that the good in design is to design so that we can cohabit the world. Sure. And this is a way that we can cohabit the world now and cohabit the world on an ongoing basis in the future. And that means having a much more deeply understood relational understanding of how we connect to things beyond us. <laughs> but if we accept that, so then this is the kind of, okay, great idea, but what do we do with it? The book then tries to tackle new concepts, new ways in which I think we have to change the way we design. And I think <laughs> we not just think about designing for sustainability or, or you know, using the same ways we design that have replicated all kinds of issues that have not been sustainable and suddenly say, you know, we're going to use those same means to design for sustainability. But I think we have to rethink the assumptions. And if we're going to forego some of the humanist notions, what are some other philosophies that can guide us? And this is a kind of pursuit of, that I take out of more than human thinking or post-humanism. Um, sure. and, and I think it opens up in a very expansive way. There's many, for example, indigenous epistemologies, indigenous ways of thinking that, that are very relational. There's non-European ways of thinking that, that, that are already accounted for. This is not necessarily something new, but it's something that I think we, I would like to put forward a narrative that can hopefully get some traction mm -hmm. in what's the current dominant narrative of design. People can see possibilities of designing in different ways that address the issues that I talked about. I mean, these are very sophisticated ideas, I would say. There, there are, first of all, there are many ideas that you're talking about here, uh, hence the, the book and <laughs> not an article or not, you know, uh, ju just a presentation or whatever. It's a whole book, uh, which is a lot of work to do. There are a lot of ideas in there. Uh, but I, the, the way that I kind of think about 
the, these kinds of things sometimes is that we, we have these ideas that might end up changing the world, might end up being put into practice at some point, but they always need refinement along the way. So when, uh, you know, the, the, the common perception, the sort of popular conception of academia and scientific research is that uh, what is written down in the academic literature and the scientific papers is final. But it's actually not like that at all. The way that I conceptualize it, the way that academics themselves conceptualize it is that it's a conversation. So the the form of our ideas or results or whatnot, which appear in papers, especially in design research, so maybe not in medicine or chemistry, I actually don't know much about how they think about their uh, uh, their knowledge in those fields. But in design research, it's always a conversation, it's always developing. Um, and there is a certain path that we need to walk and, and clear before these ideas that you're talking about in this book and, and in your papers and whatnot uh, can be actually impactful in the world. How far along the way do you think we are? Like what percentage of the way uh, does this book represent? Is, is this like 30% of the way uh, until these ideas are put into practice and some more work needs to be done? Or is it like 80% there and all someone needs to do is just to pick up this book and read it and then go as a designer, you know? Uh, how, do you, how do you see the, the road of implementing these um, post-human, I guess, ideas towards, towards a better future? Uh, wh what is the remaining path that we need to take? Yeah, that, I, mean, I mean, I guess the simple answer is I don't know. I mean, and, and, you know, it, it, it's one thing to, I mean, in other words, you know, it's kind of like a self-assessment is what you're asking. Yeah. You know, it's like to come up, write the book, and then to do the self-assessment is how far along are we? You know, yeah. and, and that's a hard thing to do. But what I, I will say is, is I, you know, I, I'm actually fairly optimistic. I mean, I sure. think we are more along um, than, than, than we give, uh, than we recognize. Sure. And I will also, I mean, I think for me, this book didn't come out of nowhere and, and, and they were, there were, um, you know, I think it came out of discussion, and I would say a large part sure. discussion, not just with students, but recent graduates of design that asked me, sure. what, what, is it, what is it we're doing? And is it always good? I mean, and I think, you know, in what way is it contributing to the world? And what is my role in that? And what, you know, what, sure. what, what should I be thinking about? And we have certain ways in which we, we have certain paths and concepts. I mentioned sustainable, sustainable design, for example. And then we tend to get sometimes... Um, uh, sometimes maybe cynical about those ideas, but I think that this, I, this notion that people are searching for and looking for, there's a kind of urgency around, like, let me put it this way. I think when, when, when people say, why do, you know, students in particular, there's a lot of excitement about taking on and committing to a, a practice like design. This notion that it will be self-fulfilling, but it will also address things in the world, issues in the world. That's what motivates most people to do this. And when, when you move along down that path, you might realize that, yes, of course, on some levels, you, you are contributing the ways you thought, but, but in other ways, not. And, 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 and the issue is, you know, design is very powerful. Design is very fundamental and, and it shapes who we are. And so what more can we ask of design? And, and I think people are asking that yeah. question. And I think they're asking that question, and then other people are asking that question along similar lines. Uh, I mean, they, they, you know, they, they're concerned about the, the uh, you know, I, I think there's, and I, I cite many of the people in the book. I try to bring in other people's practices and the work that they do to show that there is this kind of uh, emerging set of concerns and emerging um, 
research, but also different kinds of practices and people, you know, and moving into kind of like um, social enterprise practice, collecting you know, ways of doing design. Or, or, or I'm finding more and more students are asking, how can I do work that, that, that works for nonprofits or NGOs or, you know, that they're not necessarily trying to go down the corporate path or design consultancy path, which is they see other ways in which they can contribute as designers. So I think, and then of course, there's all the other research that people, I'm not alone in thinking about more than human-centered design or thinking that human-centered design is alone. And I cite, I'm not going to go through, I cite the people who are doing the academic research and, and, and asking similar kinds of questions. And I think there's enough of a basis now. Um, to me, I was, you know, the other thing about the book, and, and um, I was actually listening to a podcast with, with Salman, Salman Rushdie. Oh. And he was talking about writing fiction. Yeah, and he was saying that, you know, fiction, he doesn't, he, he was asked a question about, um, you know, actually it was about interviews. He was asked about interviews <laughs> and how he talks about, and the, actually the whole, he actually has a book now coming out. It's all about truth, truth and fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and he, he said, you know, in interviews, he lies. And then so the interviewer asked him, what do you mean? <laughs> said, well, you know, I've said in one interview, um, that all my fiction comes from my real life. Someone asked him, where does it, where does it come from? And he goes, you know, real life, real experiences, people I know. And then another interview, someone asked the same question. He goes, oh, I make it all up. It's all imagination. And he's, but then he says, but you know what? Actually, both are true in the sense sure. that he starts out triggered by things that are happening in, you know, in, in, in the world that he's in to initiate a process of fiction writing that at the end becomes a piece of imagination. And he sees that whole process as discovery. Sense-making, perhaps. You know, I see it sure. that way. I didn't know where the book was going to end up. <laughs> I, I mean, I knew the first part of it, and I knew why I wanted to do it. I knew what the questions I asked. I knew what I was experiencing as a design researcher. I knew what my you know, students were experiencing. I knew what young designers were experiencing. Sure. I knew they had questions that we didn't have the concepts. So I went ahead, you know, and 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 went ahead and, and tried to get the book ahead of myself. So in terms of how far along are we in this implementation, I take this in a real, you know, again, I like to design things. So I think I can also think very, I think very concretely and materially. What does this mean for my own practice? How do I bring these ideas into my own design research and the way we make things? Uh, and so I'm going through an implementation process of what I wrote in the book wow. in the own in, my, in the own way I make I, I'm making things and doing research. That's really interesting. It's interesting that you're you're also. I mean, it's always the case, I guess, that we we write down our ideas sometimes first and then we implement them. Uh, but yeah. speaking of ideas, my favorite part of the book was actually this uh, this. There's this collection of like terms or ideas in, in one of the later chapters. Designer as biography, designer as force, designer as speaking subject, uh, designer as intensities and origins, I, I think. Uh, and then from that, it follows, there's the idea of uh, the constituency of the designer. It's almost like a, the, the constituency of a, of a politician. Can you talk a little bit more about these ideas? Because th- these I found very powerful because uh, I think these questions really help us as designers to explain, articulate who we are, you know, where we come from, what we're actually trying to do in the world, what we're trying to create more of, uh, what positions, beliefs, visions we're giving a voice to. 
who our community is. And these are actually things that are massively important according to very successful designers out there who have made their mark. Uh, you know, if you if you listen to interviews uh, of with with Virgil Abloh, uh, with uh, 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 you know Dieter Rams, with um, uh, the, the Bjark Ingas and these other you know these super famous designers, these superstars, they always talk about these exact questions. Now I know that you're not talking about this the sort of let's call it the capitalist view or the commercial view you're not talking about a commercial kind of success or fame here uh, but you're saying the same questions also apply to this more than human thinking and the, this this thinking that will will we'll get us to this harmonious fu- future with our planet uh, can you talk a little bit about these ideas and what they mean and uh, how designers can put them into practice Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, thank you, you know, and, and I'm really glad that that section of the book resonated with you because, you know, I think that's where, when I was talking about, that's the part where I didn't know that I was going to write, <laughs> you know, that's the part where you arrive and you go, okay, this sure. is great to think about more than human, to articulate and describe some of the relationships the way I wanted to describe. So when I talk about designer, I, I talk about a designer that's not just human, You know, and then I talk about a designer works and then this, and, and, and an assemblage of technologies and materials yeah. and other things that have a form of agency that, 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 that so designers also are more than human, they're relational. And, and it, to me, that's where I kind of arrived at, but I was like, okay, great. That's a good description. But then, but then what, what, what do you do with it in a sense? Or how can, how can research help? And I think it conceptualizes things. That's, that's what you pointed out is these are, these are different concepts. And I do want to say that I don't know if it leads us to a harmonious place, but what yeah. I want to get us is to think about a place where we, the main value in thinking about designing is how we, is, is, is to cohabit well yeah. and to cohabit, to live with others and to live with others in a more than human sense. There's still tensions. There's still disagreements. There's not like a clear path, but we have that as our main concern. It's yeah. not to, 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 to just live for ourselves, but to live with others and design with others. So cohabiting is really where I want this, want this to go. Now, to back up some of this, it's interesting that you connect it to, to, to other designers and, and other forms yeah. of design. And, and I also have this, you know, through my own practice of design, I, that's my, con- you know, going back to my, I guess my Salman Rushdie uh, um, uh, reference, it's both of my own experience and then what can I imagine wholly new from that? So this idea designer's biography is not new to any designer in a limited sure. sense. You know, we know we are, you know, you, when, when someone says they're a designer and someone wants to know what you, who you are, what kind of designer you are, they ask for your portfolio. They want to attach you to a set of things that you've made. They want to construct a biography between you and the things that you have made. Yeah. And they're always, you know, and what I wanted to point out with designer's biography, and again, not just designer in the solely human sense, but that we're always attached to the things that we make. But I also wanted to bring in, uh, so we can resonate, that resonates with us in a real practical sense, the way in which we design. But then to think through that, well, well, yeah, but what does that really mean then? If we're to attach things that we make, have a lifetime to them. In fact, in many ways, they live beyond our own, uh, our own lifetimes. I, yeah. I think about Dieter Rams and you think about his real critique of Apple. Um, and, and, and I think in the, in that, in the, um, Huswit movie. Um, and, and he, you know, he's really lamenting the idea that Apple is like producing, you know, Joni, and he's critiquing Joni Ives, 
producing something new every 18 months. When, of course, if you know uh, Roms and you know Braun, you know, the yeah. idea that when he made, it, it was a product that would last. He understood at least lifetime, but even the products that last, like Braun Life, like Braun, of course, they were also known for the kind of plastics that they use, the plastics they made. Yeah. A Braun juicer, will it's a full biography. It was partly connected to Dita Roms. It's connected to all the things that it inscribes in the world. Uh-huh. You know, a lot of people can now choose oranges, but other things, of course. But of course, as a life beyond its use, it becomes waste. It becomes yeah. it's plastic. That's that a never great fun. movie, by the way. Before we move yeah. away from the subject, uh, just just for the benefit of our audience, I just wanted to recommend the drums by Gary Hustwit, who also yes. made Helvetica yeah. and uh, Objectified right. and these other super, super great uh, design documentaries. Yeah, and I think it, and 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 yeah, you'll get it. You know, you. Really, I mean, of course, many people know Rawls, but but I think you can attach it to this idea of biography that he had a sense of that. Right. We really lost that sense. I think we're so involved in newness and innovation and bringing new things to the world, and then not thinking through what exactly right. how they exist in ways that we don't even, you know, we that we don't necessarily determine. We're getting a sense of that with AI, with unintended consequences of AI. Right. But that is the life of the things that we are connected to that we bring in, into the world, and in effect. We as designers are always creating the world that we and others are going to cohabit. Yeah. So how do we pull, tempor- temporally speaking, understand the biographies that we create and all the forces at work through this longer lifespan? Yeah. And maybe that would make us think, I like to think about with biographies, is instead of us so focused on newness and novelty, maybe we'll think about something that made and think about how it's going to end. Because yeah. if you think about when you, when, you know, if you want to think about a cohabiting world and the way in which things exist in this world and they grow and then they die, they become resources again. How do we understand that? In the and we, we you know we just we we don't have a we don't have a even in design we don't even have a concept for the end. The yeah. concept of end is waste. It just doesn't. We don't use it anymore. Yeah. But in fact, there's a whole other biography to it. So I, I like to bring that. That's one reason for that that term, and then to think about design as forces is that we know we're not always in full control we're, we you know we, we have but also we have effects that we don't even beyond our intention you know so 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 in that sense that we we you know designers have this if you think about the thing that you make has this ongoing set of consequences it appears and reappears in the world and has these different intensities and continues to shape the world um and again how do we think that through if i want to cohabit you know, um, yeah. the world, if I, you know, and it was something we've lost, I've mentioned like indigenous ways of thinking is quite commonly known now, the idea of seven, seven generation thinking, yeah. you know, how, how is it, how are your acts going to play out over seven generations? Um, That's so interesting. I, uh, rem- like, you know, talking about how we don't think about the end while we're designing, I was, uh, at a, uh, architecture museum recently. I went to Stockholm. I went to, uh. What's it called in Stockholm? Moderna, I think. Uh, yeah, the, Moderna the moder- Yeah, the Mo- Modern Art Museum. And attached to that, right? there's an architecture section or an architecture right. museum. Yep. And inside of that, they have like this little uh, materials library on the wall. And uh, <clears throat> what is a materials library? I mean, this is something that you might see in like various design schools or design museums and so on. It's basically like a wall with little uh, uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, pieces of materials uh, maybe embedded in a card with some information about the material uh, and I've seen these things before and this is you know the the, the one that I saw most recently was in Stockholm uh, so there's these little material samples of Corian uh, you know this kind of wood this kind of metal this kind of plastic 
uh, or different kinds of paint and whatnot. And they talk about how durable it is, uh, water resistance, how do you apply it, how expensive is it, this and that, all kinds of data. But there's nothing about like what happens at the end of it. Like what, yeah. it, it says that it has maybe like a 10-year lifespan. But what happens at the end of the 10 years? You never hear about this. The the books doesn't don't mention this the, these things. You don't study it in engineering school. Like it's it's so interesting that we never never incorporate that into our our knowledge base. Maybe not never, but it's like very rare. Yeah, and I think that you know, and we don't just have to be, um, you know, we're not just that the materials determine their end. I mean, you know, as designers, we can shape the ending is what, I, what I'm saying. We yeah. need to account for that, right? How do we, but I think it's also, you know, and it goes beyond sustainability. I use in the book the example of, um, the, you know, designing a weather app um, and, and the idea of location services and how we're designing something that's convenient and, and has good UX. But of course, what it does is it, it, it the full biography of this in collection sure. with other apps is to create the surveillance state that we're in. You know, when when the the, surve- the idea of surveillance capitalism, as, as Zuboff calls it, um, yeah. and and playing and that you know, is this the world we want to cohabit in which our location is tracked? You know, every every thirty seconds or so. You know, if we through our phones with all the apps, that this is this is the the. The question I want to ask designers is, is how does what it is and, and, and how is what it is that you design? What is its full biography in terms of the life of it, but also after it's, it's done, what it leaves behind, but how does it construct the world that you're going to cohabit or how does it contribute to that world that you're going to cohabit? And is that the world you want to cohabit? Um, and then this goes back to the, I think you mentioned the notion of constituency because yeah. So the problem, I mean, it's like, you know, you can ask an individual designer that question. And the problem is a lot of these questions of ethics and, and what's the good of design comes back to the individual designer. It, it's this, as you mentioned, kind of capitalist ways of doing design, this kind of neoliberal notion. And that we have a lot of that in design, this idea of kind of like disrupt everything, innovation, everything is new. It's all about, you know, individual experiences. But then the ethics of it comes down to the individual designer. And this is just really... um Untenable. It, 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 you can't. And individual sure. designers is the scale of, of choice and a scale of implications that one cannot deal with individually. So this is sure. why I raised the question of constituencies, which is the collective structures that we design with. How do we choose? You know, I mean, I think rather than think so, and people do do this. You choose. You make your own studio. You create your own consultancy. Sure. You create the values and ethics around those consultancies. The question of how committed are you to those, I think, is an ethical question that needs to be brought up. But we do this collectively, and I happen to argue there's other collective structures that we could we should be looking at in design. Sure. And if we want to have, you know, if we if we want to achieve what we believe is the good in design and design in ways that's more than human, we might need new collective structures, and that's a power of designers. Sure. And and this is the, to do that. We've done that over and over. We construct our, our collective ways of, of of making things, and we've gotten to a point where we think that those things are unchanged. We can't change them. You have to design for a corporation, or you have sure. to design. You know, in 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 in, uh, in through consultancies, which I'm not saying that those are necessarily bad, but they're all. We can think more expansively. There are alternatives to this. I I have this book called uh, Reinventing Organizations. It's exactly about what you're. Th- I don't know if you've read this one or or heard no, about it. 
but it's no. uh, it's exactly about what you're what you're talking about. I would actually love to have the author of this book uh, on on this show. Oh, no, I some think point. we should do that. Frederick Lelux. I... Uh, yeah, he has a very interesting theory about organizations. He says that the way that organizations evolve through human history is anal- analogous to how uh, humans develop in their early years. So you know we're children at some point, and then we develop various faculties as we age. And uh, organizations, apparently, in in uh, his telling of the history, are developing in a similar way. And right now, we are at a particular stage. Uh, of he calls it the uh, the teal organization, so he's like color coded and everything. Uh, but anyway, I don't want to I don't want to uh, divert yeah. the subject so much. So much. I'll I'll let you uh, finish the uh, the thought. <laughs> yeah. No. No. I think that, that. I mean, I think that the the you know. So I think that certainly this question of how we organized, think about design, to think about how we would support the designing we want to do. Yeah. Um, it's a question, but a lot of the literature, and even within design, if you think about collective pursuits in design, like participatory design, are human-centered. We're talking mostly about social organization. So I, I wanted to yeah. add to this idea that collective structures is also about what you gather, and this could go to the materials that you're talking about. Like, yeah. like if you're going to take up certain material, you make that part of your practice, and you know that you know it, it, it only lasts for 10 years, but then what? That's a question to ask. And then yeah. to decide if that should be part of the constituency or not. Um, and, sure. and, and of course, also some forces that you, you work with, with, with not just materials, but other non-human um, um, things that have their own agency. Like, again, like the scale of the software we work sure. with, you know, that, that's, do you, you want to have that as part of your constituency that we, you know, like Facebook is a particular constituency that sure. works at a scale of 2.4 billion users. Which is a scale that that that, that creates uh, you know harm, right. whether it's unintended or intended, is really beside the yeah. point. It's just very challenging to work at that scale, and that's a choice. Um, and this gets to the last part about I think where we here we are talking about design, and we're talking about things sure. that can't talk themselves. So this is the idea of what is the role of the human designer, and this is the speaking subject, sure. um, and 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 that language is very powerful. You know, of course. Um, throughout, you know, what it is to be human or how to act in this world and also powerful yeah. in the sense that it is a way to negotiate politics and power. Um, and it has a big role in design. Um, and I think we, you know, I, and I think we're always, I wrote in the book about how I wanted to bring a lot of things and examples in the book, but it partly is a witness to the language I was using because yeah. language can also be deceptive and speaking on behalf of uh, you know, in a constituency, there's a lot of negotiation, there's a lot of politics, even thinking about what a material is or what it should do, or or, or how do you speak on behalf of non-human things that can't speak for themselves, yeah. animals or plants or, or whatever. And so it's rife with these kinds of questions, but these are the questions we need to tackle. We need yeah. to understand not only how do we use human reason to be, you know, to, 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 to seize upon and act just by things that we as humans find valuable, but how do we utilize this idea of human reason and language in a world that's more than human. And I think that's an important question for designers. You know, and I think this comes again back from the concrete experience of design. We get very, in the practice of design, you get very intimate with the non-human parts of what you're designing. If you're doing code, you're very intimate with that code. You almost can get that code to speak. You're very intimate with the materials. You can shape things, you know, 
you you know, I think it's almost you know in this kind of uh, vernacular way. You say, hey, you made mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. talk. You made something say. Yeah. You know, we 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 have methods by which we do this. We try to understand the non-human things that work, and I think that in that sense, design has a really inherent capacity to address a lot of these more than human issues that I raised. And we can we can build on our existing practices in some respects, but with a broader sense of understanding that goes beyond um for sure thinking. Uh speaking of this like broadening, I I just noticed that like some of these issues that you're that you're mentioning, some of these challenges we talk about. So for example, you mentioned the Uh, the weather app, which might be collecting data about its users and contributing to this uh, this construct of surveillance capitalism, some of these are are they really within the scope of what designers do, or should they really be in there? Because if you look at what designers do in a company like Apple, for example, and in the weather app, they might be doing the user interface. So they decide the typography and the colors and the layouts and whatnot. But the the decision to collect data from users or not to collect the data is not necessarily one that falls on the designer in these uh, in these let's call them communities or these organizations. Uh, it's the uh, the management that decides that. And if you as a designer object to that, then they will just find another designer. So is it necessarily productive to try to expand uh, the purview of designers towards uh, covering these kinds of Uh, decisions or is it maybe the case that maybe you know if we really care about this particular issue then perhaps what we should be doing is not design but uh, some other kind of discipline in order to solve this challenge so that i mean that's a i mean it's a great question and 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 there's that i you know i try to tackle that in the book in different ways you you know there, there are many things and i'll sort of try to work backwards and hopefully don't get lost in answering your question but Right now, so these issues that you're talking about, like, should we let other disciplines tackle these issues? That's the current default. The current default is to allow legislative bodies, legal systems, um, governments regulate and, and, and adjudicate on these issues on, like control Facebook, for example, deal with data and, and, and surveillance. And we, we rely on other disciplines and research to kind of say, Hey, you know that 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 whether it's sociology uh, or, or or whatever else to 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 that's their concern. How do we protect people's privacy or uh, um, and again law and political sides and so on and philosophy. Okay. And my the question I mean what's so so in response to that I would say why is that not part of we're not that we are going to solve but why are we not we meaning those who design not part of this investigation we don't no one no one the legal system the you know the 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 the, the policy making none of the not one any one of these on their own is going to is going to tackle the issue it kind of needs all hands in and i think design have almost given that up they've abdicated they've reduced their scope of concerns to the point that that's not even a concern and then to the point about the individual designer is it fair well i guess i sort of two i one i already answered one part of that question which sure. i think no it's not fair But I think it's so problematic that we think about designers as individual designer, but we educate sure. that way. We have these, again, I think this is part of this kind of, we, we create a kind of neoliberal fantasy of what it is to be the great designer, which is to be <laughs> that hero individual that makes all the great designs. And now why aren't we, of course, we're going to ask that same hero individual, why aren't you going to solve surveillance capitalism? Because they're the hero individual. We know those people don't exist. 
which goes back to my point about, you know, you've been asked this other question, who thinks they're a designer? And you're never going to get a straight answer to that. The, Within a corporate, yeah. So it goes back to this idea of cons- that designers actually act collectively. Apple or, or Facebook or any other company, they're constituencies. Okay. They're not the kind of constituencies that I think we want to cohabit the world better. But they are a constituency. They are a collective structure. They create biographies. They are what I call in the book anti-biographies because they don't think through the end of these things. They don't think through the effect. They let other people deal with issues around surveillance and privacy. Not all. I mean, you know, to their credit, I suppose Apple is trying to make privacy a central feature of, of their identity as a corporation. But it is the corporation. That is the collective structure. That is the constituency that design. And it's not even, I mean, on one level, we opt in, we opt out. And there's plenty of, you know, I think there's plenty of, of um, like, for example, within Google um, and, and, and within Facebook, there's plenty of, you know, corporate activism amongst sure. employees trying to push, you know, I think with Amazon, trying to say, we don't want to have these contracts with the Pentagon. You know, with Google, we don't want to do that. You know, and, and, and so there is resistance, so to speak, within to try to change the collective structure. That's what that's about, to try to change the constituency. And I would like to, to push this into education where mm. we're not pushing that you as just you as you, you're not an individual designer. We, we've already, over the years, we've made a big thing about how we do design as teams. So we already know that the, the, the least of, the, the, the smallest unit of designer is a team, <laughs> right? And, and we even accept an interdisciplinarity within a team. So it's not even just someone who's skilled in particular types of different ways of designing. Someone may not even contact and come into and, you know, their hands may not even touch the thing that's being designed. But yet they're still part of the design team. But we need more than that. We, we understand. So that collective and acknowledgement of the politics, the acknowledgement of the goal to have this better world and what is at stake. So to shift this attention, I think. I'd like to see a shift to creativity toward the, um, the, the collective structure, the constituencies by which we deny. And also those constituencies, to go back to my point, they're the choices around the non-human things, the technologies that you right. tend to use, the material that you use, the, the kind of who are the stakeholders, which should go beyond human stakeholders that's involved in it. Who gets to say when, when, when Apple decides that they're going to use a particular kind of like polycarbonate or, you know, with the material choices they make when they, you know, a hundred million iPhones or, or whatever, which stakeholders get to have a say in this or, or get to argue against this or negotiate this. So if we, you know, that's, I think, I think that the, the, the pushback is that, yes, I think that this needs to be in the broader understanding of the, what we think about the collective structures by which we design, these need to be concerns. Uh, Yes, and it needs to be, we need to be partly accountable. We can't just let other people be accountable. We need to go beyond the design problem as we like uh, to, you know, as we like to think of the design process. Um, and then, of course, then it's fair to say, how do we do it? You know, so that's what I'm trying to do is conceptualize ways that we can think about this and put this into practice. And, um, so speaking of, you know, the scope of design and the boundaries of design, Another central idea in your book was the nomadic practice. And when I heard this, I was actually thinking about being like a digital nomad and remote work and and everything. But in fact, it's not about that at all. Instead, if I get it right, uh, what you're saying is that the different disciplines of design, the different uh, pockets of design practice, uh, such as, let's, let's say, graphic design, illustration, interaction design, product design, 
uh, architecture, etc., do not share a common foundation. So you're saying, as I understand, you can correct me if I'm wrong, of course, that there is no unifying underlying kind of design thinking or design process that instantiates each of these in a common fashion uh, and that there's no commonality between how designers, studios, agencies do their work. So every designer and every design, every artifact, every process is unique, I guess. That's how we can summarize it. Uh, so there's no singular understanding of design. And your book, in, in a way, following from this, is about unbuilding design. So that's what the nomadic practice kind of uh, uh, ends up in. It feels postmodern to me, if I may take the risk of like using the term uh, uh, inaccurately. And again, this is something that you might correct, maybe. Uh, but how exactly does this take us to like beyond human centricity to achieve more than what we've been able to achieve so far because if you unbuild our way of doing things and essentially you know start from scratch uh aren't we just going to end up like reinventing the same things how do you know that the unbuilding and the subsequent rebuilding is going to take us to a better place yeah so that again great question and you got a lot of rack up into that question <laughs> thanks so, I mean, first of all, I don't think we'll go to the same place because, again, of like I was saying, is that, you know, if we did, if, if, if we, if we tried, if we, if we want to pursue different goals, but we do them the same way, we will likely arrive at the same place. So, in some sense, if we want to kind of find a, a different way to design, we literally have to take it apart. That's what I mean by unbuilding. If we, if we replicate the discipline of design, to try to tackle things that are more than human, we won't do it well. So that's that. That's my that's my argument. The question is: It postmodern? I think the interpretation you break to nomadic practices is 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 a is one that you, in the sense that it seems like everything is relative. It's atomized. It's like there's like everything, yeah. like nothing is the same. Everything is unique, and and that's no, that's not what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So so what I'm trying to say here is first of all, nomadic practices was a way of arguing that we need to think about design without thinking about disciplines. So I'm really after sure. the idea of the discipline of design. What, what is and, a discipline? Can you give an example of a discipline? Yeah. So a discipline, well, I think about, if you think about, you know, where did you go to, where did you go to school? Hmm. Uh, me? I, I went to school in Istanbul. And then what, yeah, but what, what and you studied design. Oh yeah, uh, uh, for, at the university, I studied mechanical engineering. Mechanical engineering. Yeah. So mechanical engineering is a discipline that has a department. Yeah. Right? I mean, you have certain foundations of knowledge. We determine what's important to learn and what isn't important to learn. We exclude what we think is not important to learn. Yeah. And we discipline that knowledge by saying, this is what you have to learn. Mm -hmm. This all the things you have to learn. And then you have, you understand the discipline. And then we extend that into research is like, these are what the questions are in terms of research that relate to the discipline. So disciplines are a way of, you know, Michel Foucault, a French philosopher, really argued yeah. this in many ways in this book, particularly discipline and punish and the ways in which knowledge is, is a form of disciplining. Um, yeah. And, you know, I know that it's, it, it, there's no mistake that it's called discipline. This is what's right in what we say is mechanical engineering, and this mm -hmm. is not what's right. Don't do that. Now, to me and all the research and the time I spent doing design research, the there's always been this question about what is the discipline of design. Right. I've even actually shipped away from thinking about design as a noun. Like I, I'd like to refer to it as designing because I think it's a performative 
act. And this goes to nomadic practice. Because when you say design, it's as if there's some abstraction of what it is. There's a discipline of design. Mm-hmm. We under, we all understand what that is. Um, and then in in um, we tend to, in disciplinary terms, if you think about design, there's all these sub-disciplines that people try to argue. What is the most, um, uh, what's the top of the pyramid of the mm. discipline? What's the most design of all the sub-disciplines? <laughs> for many years, you know, that's like been architecture, for example. You know, oh, architecture wow, okay. is the model by which we do that. But my goal here is that it's really about knowledge and intellectual practice. And, intell- and, 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 and when you say, you, you know, do research on this one design, the question, I think it's the most boring question in design research is what is design? Everyone's spending their time trying to answer what is design. They're trying to find this common knowledge, this shared thing amongst all of these different practices and activities of design. But when they start to answer the question of design, they let us are trying to understand what the discipline of design is. And my problem with it is that when you really listen to those arguments, it's really more often about what to exclude than what to include. Mm-hmm. Right? So you're narrowing and narrowing and narrowing. Yeah. I mean, that's and, and how you make it like tractable, I guess. That's right. Or you make hierarchies. And there's two concepts I have in the book that I keep coming back to. One is expansiveness. We need to be much more expansive about the way we understand design if we're going to tackle the issues that we need to tackle. We need to be much more generous about who is designing and what is designing. Uh-huh. Um, and, and the other one is, at the same time, it seems kind of contradictory, but we need humility. So we need humility that maybe, yes, we can have multiple ways of designing, but it's not the only way. It's a contribute in amongst all these other ways of designing. Now, when I say, so nomadic practices allows us to be, rather than having to knock on the door and say, is my design, the way I, when I'm designing, is this real design? Can I get into the discipline? And having the gatekeepers of the discipline, namely me as the academic <laughs> saying, no. <laughs> These other structures, nomadic practice structures would say, go ahead. If you have a claim about designing and you have something that you want to design, then do that. Uh-huh. And who gathers around this? So the, the, the question comes down to this point I was making about collectivity. So what this, uh-huh. So first of all, nomadic practices can intersect. They can share. You think about consultancies. They're different nomadic practices. They're very different. Everyone, every consultancy will say that they're different. Yeah. They're not the same as the other consultancy. They intersect a lot, though. They obviously share a lot of things. So uh-huh. you can have both. They're not mutually exclusive. You can have a quality of uniqueness with a lot of shared collective pursuits. And when you add it all up together, the collective actions of all of the, if you're much more, first of all, you're much more expansive. You can allow anybody who wants to claim that they're doing some form of designing. They don't need to call it a, a discipline. They can call it a nomadic practice. They can also um, be much more have more humility. They're not claiming this is the best and the only way to design. And when you, you allow for all of the above to try to tackle this issue of how to design to cohabit the world better, and in the collective, you pull it all together, you're going to have a much greater possibility of doing what you said earlier, making progress. Um, and also, you know, in, in a kind of theoretical, philosophical thinking, is disciplines are very humanist-based. They come back to Disciplines are Western European Enlightenment constructs. Hey. You know, they're, they're, they're ways of parceling out and, and, and dividing up knowledge and get delegating pieces of knowledge to different people. And as if the whole picture is controlled in some particular way, that's what represents human knowledge. If I want to do a post-humanist approach that's not grounded in humanism, I also need different means of doing it. And that's why nomadic practices is really important. But what I hope out of that is that, you know, I get this all the time when I'm doing, you know, I was, you know, 
people who do policy who want to know, are they designing or they think that they're designing? Or, or we have this whole thing now around, you know, design thinking, uh, you know, and, 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 and where and which, and yeah, different ways in which everyone is doing design thinking on some level of designing. And I think that that's, I'd like to give more oomph to that, more power to that, more political urgency to that. And, and it's not just an abstract way of thinking, but it's actually, and it's not all the same, but it's actually a unique form of practice. It's a material practice that we have to engage in. Yeah, just think about it and have an abstract concept of what design is. Wow. That was a lot to think about. <laughs> <laughs> well, was, you had a pretty packed question, so. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I mean, this, this uh, notion of the nomadic practice, I, I have to confess this was one of the more kind of uh, in, in, like more, one of the more arcane and maybe confusing, I guess, uh, yeah. uh, aspects or concepts in this book have you thought about like now it's been a while since you wrote this book and you know you've been talking about it for more than a year i guess uh have you thought about like if you had to rename it what would you call it the book or nomadic uh, practices the the nomadic practices i don't know that i would rename nomadic practices i've always thought about where that shows up in the book huh. and i think it's about thinking about the different audiences that it serves i mean on the one hand i mean I, I mean, the, the audience for the book is a broad, is broadly designers and, and, and design researchers. Uh -huh. But yes, it is, a, I mean, but I want to get at a certain depth. I mean, a real depth. And I, and, uh -huh. and I want to be, you know, I, I don't think it's simple. I, I think it's, it requires some comp complicated approaches. And so, as you know, it's very philosophical yeah. and very theoretical. And I am an academic and it has to go, you know, and it has to have credibility, of, you know, as, as an academic. Yeah, yeah. Nomadic practice is part of the argument that allows me to do it. I mean, it comes early in the book. I mean, to me, the more exciting mm -hmm. parts are later in the book. My favorite chapter yeah. is, I think, part the one you, you, you mentioned. It's actually part three of the book. You know, I mean, about, you know, part one of the yeah. book is what is design? And that's where nomadic practice <laughs> is. In, and then part two is things. The boring question. Yeah, yeah. Part two is things, which is an interesting <laughs> question, but it's also very descriptive. It describes what things are. And then part three is, I think, where it gets really interesting, which is who are we? Yeah. Uh, so what does it mean to be a designer? So I, my favorite parts of the book are chapter eight, um, chapter seven, uh, you know, and, and the part three of the book, I think chapter six, if I have it right, if I'm remembering all yeah. the chapters correctly. That was my favorite as well. Um, so, so no, I don't think, I, I don't think, I mean, I think you always, I mean, I, I, I think that there are things I've, so part of you mentioned before that research for academics is sure. um, a discussion. It's not a fait accompli. It's not, I mean, this book has been a basis, I, don't, I mean, I put a lot into forming that basis, mm -hmm. uh, but a basis for discussion. I've learned so much. I mean, the things I would have liked to reframed, uh, perhaps in an even more generous way about more than human thinking that was more inclusive of kind yeah. of indigenous and non-European ways of thinking. Um, and I do encourage people, I would do kind of, I, I thought about in the book about dressing the audience to saying, hey, if you don't want to, if you're not an academic, you might want to skip you know, uh, this section. Yeah. <laughs> but let me tell you something else though. So to you, nomadic practices is, is the part that's, you know, maybe challenging and more arcane. Yeah. To other people, that's one of their favorite parts. So oh, I, really? I don't, yeah, yeah. So I don't know how you account for, um, people are, you know, I, I mean, I guess that's the, it's an interpretive text. So, uh, it might be because I am kind of transitioning at this point in my life from, more academically oriented work to more practically oriented work. So I'm, I'm yeah. 
trying to move to uh, doing more commercial projects, more more cultural projects rather than scientific, um, and more you know actual design practice rather than uh, uh, writing about design or talking about design. And at this point in my life, I'm always thinking about like how do I construct my discipline? How do I construct my practice around limits of things that I do not do? Because if I start doing everything, then I will be spread too thin and my projects are are going to be limited in terms of how deep they can go. And I will have a hard time articulating what I do to potential clients, to potential uh, collaborators in the commercial space. Uh, So my whole thinking at at this time of my life is uh, uh, directed towards like, how do I limit myself as a designer? How do I define myself? rather than how do I expand myself and how do I engage with these like broader questions and whatnot. So that's, that's always front of mind for me these days. And it just coincided uh, uh, that, that this was the time of my life that I read this book. And maybe that's why that idea of the nomadic practice, which, as you said, expands uh, what design is in a way, uh, got into like a, a bit of a dissonance with that part of my brain which was working on limiting myself i guess that's that's the explanation of why <laughs> it was challenging to me yeah i think i think i don't know i think i mean i think there's another i mean first of all i think that that's great i mean i think that's the way we we we, we can be post effective i think the idea of focus and commitment um and what i'd like to think is that within your focus and commitment you could perhaps see a role that that some of this discussion it doesn't mean sure. giving up your focus and commitment, but it's your relationship to it. But on the other, but I will also say that yes, that that chapter, which is chapter two, it in some sense is the hardest right. for those non-academics because it is definitely the most academic chapter. It is the one that cites the most. Yeah, um, and you know, and it, and academic literature, in order to make a claim about an area, you have to show you know the literature of the area. Yeah, you know, and, and 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 you know this. So in many ways, nomadic practice was a way to slip in the. Related literature section that's expected. Yeah. To say yes, okay. If you're going to talk about you know human computer interaction, you know that you know the, all the citation, and so I, I I totally see how that in that sense uh, you know it's like sometimes yeah it, that 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 can be the most I think that is in fact the most challenging sure. part for a lot of people when it comes to academic texts is managing all the citations and people that you don't know and how that's sure. being referenced and then feeling you're not part of this discussion. Um, yeah. But in the world of academia, you need to show that you know this work uh, and that yeah. your ideas are grounded or based on other people's ideas and not just wholly, you know, your own in terms of purely imaginative. Exactly. I mean, that's the whole point of why I started this channel in a way, because some, some of the things I do on this uh, on this publication are exactly trying to take those discussions and those ideas and condense them and sort of articulate them to a audience of practitioners and like yeah. more junior students who because i know that you know it takes like maybe five or ten years to properly understand the academic literature and what the discussions are all about and uh, for a for a master's student or an early phd student or someone who's maybe never been to graduate school but interested in uh broadening their intellectual base as a designer they're not really penetrable at first um, so one of the things we're trying to do here is is to to appeal to those people or to communicate with those people uh, uh, what what all of these things are about. Uh, but that actually, so I'm seeing that we are approaching the end of our time, uh, and also I have come to the end of my like let's call them long form questions. 
but I have a few quickfire questions that I like to ask all of my guests. Uh, may I uh, proceed with those before we hang up? Yeah, yeah. Just say one quick thing I like about your podcast, and I hope that's what I like about having written a book and doing podcasts and having yeah. talks show up on YouTube. I like to think. I hope it's like the gateway drug toward, you know, engaging some of the other literature. And I know it's hard, but maybe getting it, you know, explained and mediated a little bit that allows it makes it more accessible. So you know, yeah, I I, I think that that's that's a great rule that applies. It's a yeah, I mean, it's a discussion, it's a conversation, but sometimes these conversations that are happening in the academic literature, they're basically happening between professors. They are happening between uh, people who have spent 10, 15 years inside of that ecosystem. And even yeah. though the, even inside of the ecosystem to some of the more junior members of the, of, the, of the community, they are not always accessible. So I think there's a place for this kind of publication, for this kind of discussion. Uh, in addition to the, you know, the papers and the books and, and all of the other things that we have. Uh, yeah, but, you know, and, and trust me, from someone who's spent a lot of time in universities, I'm looking, thinking about professors from other disciplines, other fields, other departments, yeah. design as a practice is totally inaccessible to them. <laughs> they, they don't understand it. They don't understand what's being said. Like you get what designers in the room, they have no idea what's going on. So, you know, there's always questions of languages across different. Yeah. But we also know. don't understand what they say. You know, think about like two surgeons yeah. talking about like their technical yeah, exactly. things. We, we're going to have no idea, you know? <laughs> exactly. uh, but speaking of, uh, of that, speaking of design and, uh, you know, things being clear to each other. What is a thing about design that is clear to you, but that you have to explain to people around you all the time? To me, it's it's how fundamental designing is. So what I mean, I think people, like we think of this as if you think about the common, the dominant notion of design of being this um, commercial practice and making things that we need to, to hopefully convince people that they need them in and out lives. I need to, to my though, that in fact, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for design. We are, I like this phrase that comes out of, um, by a, a, a theorist, post-human theorist on, on um, he says that humans are prosthetic creatures. Right. They're always attached to look at us. We have all kinds of things, design things that are attached to us. So it seems kind of obvious, but I don't think people understand the full importance of it. So, so I think that changes uh, things. And then therefore, I think it leads to really important kind of philosophical questions. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, of who we are, because I think design is that important. Design is a way to understand who we are. And I mean that in its kind of fullest sense. Uh, but then also political questions of what we want to be. Uh, so that's what, I mean, I think that's, yeah, that, that's what I would say is something that I, I don't know if I always have to explain, but I think I find that, that whenever, often talking about Designing with people, it, it, it's talked about in a very narrow, very constrained sense. Sure. It, it make, it's discussed in a way that makes it out to be far less important than it is. Well, I mean, th th there is design as we think about it in, uh, you know, as educators as, as, at the universities, and that's very kind of broad uh, because we tend to, you know, when students come to us to learn design, it's not at all uh, certain that they will go into a career in design, let's say. So we want to uh -huh. give them an, a, a knowledge that stems from design maybe, but might be useful in other areas of life or, or, or professional practice. Uh, but when you look at what designers do in the, in the job market, in the commercial arena, like the actual uh, 
uh, uh, you know, things that are being done by people whose job titles are uh, related to design, then I think it, it, it is significantly narrower than what we think about in academia. That was my observation. I think you're right, but I do think it goes beyond academia and professional practice. And I think that there's this kind of, mm. you know, I, I mean, I think another, you know, a question, I, I don't think professional practice is the final arbiter of what is designing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think that, I, that, that they're, they're, like I said before, I mean, you could, you know, you can design outside. I think you, you know, for example, professional practice of design and even the idea of of um, as we know it now, and even even the idea that it's an academic discipline is incredibly new. I mean, we we can go back to architecture as a practice, maybe go back to the Renaissance and, and, and pre-Renaissance. But we this this notion that design is 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 something that is you know is solely represented by how we've described how we've described it in the last thirty or forty years strikes me as very odd. Uh, anyway, so the point being is, I think it's even broader than that. I don't think it's just academics. I think there are people who, like yeah. I said, I you know, if I'm t- like I'm giving a talk um, uh, next two weeks from now at a conference on cultural geographers who oh, see wow. some relation to what they do in terms of designing uh, mm. and in terms of more than human designing, you know. And I think it's a practice of shaping and 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 constructing and contributing to the construction of our worlds. It's just so basic that way. So to me, yeah. So, but it goes beyond. My point is, it's not. Well, I think I mean it's the idea that they. I mean, anyway, that's a whole other discussion. (laughs) But 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 the point is, I think there's there there are also people. As I said, I mentioned like you know, I mean, I there's in 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 my prior, you know, in another phase of my research, I had that concept that I was talking about with everyday design that everyone is a designer in the way in which they shape and reshape their whole their environments. Yeah. Um, and, and they appropriate and the things that are designed and use them in other ways and they have this creative act which we would for all intents and purposes could call designing they're not trained designers that's the name of your research group right everyday design studio that's where it comes from yeah. like where it's, that's where it comes from um, and so this if you just if you separate out the trained designer and the, uh-huh. the, the paid designer as you know they do their acts of designing but others do acts of design as well. And so that's why I think the remit of design is much broader. Okay, that's so interesting. And, and it's important. Yeah. Uh, so you take in a lot of students, I presume. You, you have graduate students who work with you, undergrads. Uh, are there any particular books, movies, YouTube channels, uh, right. I don't know, documentaries? Uh, whatever that you recommend to people, uh, the, the, to these like students that first encounter you. So if a graduate student first comes to you in your lab to work with you, do they get like a reading list or something? Uh, and what is on that reading list if, if that exists in any form? Somebody who wants to join our group or work with me as a, as a PhD student, uh, not, not because I'm egocentric, but I ask them to read our, our research. <laughs> you know, I, and, 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 and because I want to know if, if that is something that interests them, that way yeah. of thinking, because we're, we're, you know, I think we kind of go about it in a certain way. Yeah. So, so, and, and, you know, did those ideas resonate with them? And uh, so I don't, I don't necessarily have a canon that says, here's the reading list. Of course, it's implied mm. that are you interested in, you know, so, so, so different ideas. If, if I think about people who want, are interested in philosophy, um, technology and design. 
you know, I might ask them to read, you know, um, it suggests that they read like Peter Paul Verbeek's, you know, mm -hmm. um, um, what things do, uh, the song. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that that's a great, you know, I think that's a really great, again, I think that's a really great gateway book <laughs> to understanding philosophy, a little bit of relationality and design. I also like, um, um, it's, it's more of a philosophical text, but I can also understand the post-human and relationalist, okay. um, uh, vibrant matter. So Jane Bennett's vibrant matter, I okay. think is, 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 is a great book to understand that. And it takes a little while, but if you're, you know, I think I, I, I gone a hair away and, and staying with yeah. the trouble or, you know, I think, I think those are really more challenging texts to read. Um, but I think that's the kind of work I try to combine that, you know, but, but also, also there's like. Like, actually, I have it here. So this is a great book. Uh, it's fiction. You know, Richard Powers, The Overstory, right. which is about kind of relationality in terms of um, the, the, the more recent actual um, kind of work that's been done about trees and how trees communicate and really gets into a wonderful kind of relational story about trying to understand the urgency wow. and how we live with things. And then I actually pulled some books because I knew you were going to ask this question. So here's another yeah. kind of really abstract, but I think is like, how much are you willing Oh, to I love that one. Yeah, so in Praise of Shadows. Yeah. So, so, of course, you know, yeah. it's, it's, I like to get some of the in Praise of Shadows. Yeah, what, what's the yeah. willingness to push things, to perceive, also, you know, to just focus on something like shadows. And I, I think the depth of like that, we were talking about poor focus and commitment. But I think through focus and commitment, you can start to see some broader sets of yeah. issues. You know, something is fundamental. I mean, I really like to challenge kind of, kind of key assumptions that we have and, yeah. and then work through them. Yeah, in in that book, in uh, in in Praise of Shadows, there's a chapter that he's talking about uh, toilets. Yeah, and he's comparing the design of like traditional Japanese toilets to Western toilets, and it's like it was so crazy when I read that. It was like, okay, this is what I got into design for. Like, it's so nerdy, and it's just just like being able to look at these just everyday, you know, the coffee cup or the toilet or whatever yeah. these everyday objects in your life and uh, uh, access so much meaning and so much. Uh, 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 I would say even emotion through these materials and these forms. That's what design is about to me, and it captures that brilliantly in that in that little book. I mean, I think it's all these mundane things that, in a way, you know, there's kind of a term, philosophical term of sedimentation. Over right. time, these things sediment, and then they create, they construct a world, and they shape us very directly. But also, we attune to them in very complex ways, and. You know, my favorite part of that of that book is when he's talking about a restaurant that he loves, but then they used electric lighting and it changed yeah. everything, you know, and, yeah. and, and then it's an interesting question about that, the, 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 you know, it's well beyond the utility of the technology. Um, and that's an interesting yeah. question, of course, for, for us who are designing with technology. Um, but yeah, I think that that, I think to me, that's really important is to try to understand the, 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 the relationship. I mean, this connects back to work beyond the work I'm doing now, the everyday design work of the knowing within the mundane. I mean, yeah. it, 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 and I think that's where design has a kind of purchase. Um, and I think there's a lot of power in, in that. I mean, you know, we are really shaped by, if you look around you, you look around me, these are the things that literally shape who I am and what I am and what I can do and what I cannot do and what mm -hmm. I will do and what I won't do. Um, and, and that's the, that's the power of the mundane. Um, and yeah. it's so, it touches on everything. Uh, so anyway, I think that's worth, that's why I think design is so fundamental. Design is so rich. And exactly. to me, it's not a strange notion to think about design and then to move quickly to philosophy because design <laughs> can be very philosophical. Definitely. What are you excited about these days? What is next for you? 
Yeah, so I, I kind of mentioned it earlier that I think, you know, the, the, the book was a kind of act of discovery. So it was a way, well, I had of where I was at the time and my own practice of research. That is what I was going to work with and what questions I was asking and what goals and who I was going to work with, et cetera. Um, so catching up to the book, really. Um, and I think we've been doing things now where we've been exploring biographies. We've been designing um, things in the, as, as, as design research to ask the question about what is the end of the thing that we're designing. And so actually, this is why I, mean, I mentioned earlier that I was doing a lot of work with textiles. Hmm. It just sort of came together. It's a kind of material I always wanted to explore. But I think we can start to think about um, textiles in terms of its life and the differences between organic and synthetic textiles. And anyway, there's a number of things that it's not, it goes beyond the material. And, and, and um, so that's one. The other aspect I'm thinking about is this, the, the overall term I use, you know, I said that I wanted to think about designing to co-happen. I call it designing with. So what does that mean to design with more than humans? And so I'm doing work related to with bees right now, kind of designing oh, with like, but the, the idea that we're sort of bees and Wi-Fi. We construct environments within our own apartments, within our homes, but they extend beyond our homes into environments and worlds that are not exclusively human. And what happens when we bring attention to that? We bring that to the fore. So what's the connection between Wi-Fi, for example, and bees? And how do we design with that in mind? So that's a real concern of mine. Actually, the interesting thing I'm trying to do is not necessarily resolve that, but try to understand all the tensions around with them. Hmm. So, um, and then the last thing I would say is I'm really trying to shift. This is a bigger challenge for my own practice, but trying to go beyond working with any, within Eindhoven and within you know, SFU to find groups that I can really work on this issue of constituencies. Hmm. Actually, part of this is, that is actually happening in the Netherlands, working with students who and, and recent graduates who want to rethink collective structures to design. Um, and, and again, as in, in the Netherlands, there's actually a wonderful culture for this where it was accepting, there's a much more experimentation about what it means yeah. to design and how to design and so on. And so, so that's another area I want to explore. Yeah. I mean, design in the Netherlands is like, you, you've touched on this topic before, but I think I should do like a whole episode on, on that topic. It's fascinating. You the whole The entire country, like the land on which they are setting foot is actually man-made, like human-made. Yes. Uh, yes. uh, so the, the whole geography is designed and that's yes. why in these, and, and also in Sweden, like these Northern European countries, you know, the climate can be unforgiving. It's not very bountiful. Uh, nature is not giving to you a lot of, uh, the resources that you get in the, in the Mediterranean, for example. Uh, so you have to design, you have to create your own living environment and that really contributes to that's, that's what makes up the design culture in these geographies. You know, design doesn't, it's not an abstract concept. And that's what I was getting at yeah. earlier. In fact, we, we started talking about it. I think we've come back to it different yeah. times in the conversation. And it's true. Yeah. I mean, of, of many places, I mean, you know, my, my, my parents are from Indonesia and I go to Indonesia and, and, and the different places in Indonesia and the different ways in which rice has grown, for example, it yeah. shapes, shapes actually the culture and design around that. And again, it comes back, yeah. it is often rooted in, in like Italy is a clear example of working within the constraints of, 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 you know, mountains and water and valleys and, 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 and where you can have manufacturing and the kind of materials that are available to you and the skill sets and, and, and so on. You know, it, yeah. in, in Eindhoven, it's fascinating because Eindhoven as a city didn't even, like, like you said, you know, much of the Netherlands is just constructed and yeah. Eindhoven as a city didn't exist. It was, of course, known for Philips. Um, and Philips sure. decided that's where they were going to do their manufacturing. And so they drew farmers from villages around Phyllis, but they thought that these would be people they could train 
to do the production of light bulbs, for example. Um, wow. And, you know, so, so these things are really, um, you know, there's another book and I shoot, it's a, it's a, um, and so it, it, it's an early book on more than human thinking. And it's by a phenomenologist named David Abrams. It's called, um, Place of Sensuousness, I think it's called. Place um, of Sensuousness. Okay. Yes. I think, wait, let me be sure. Oh, sorry. The Spell of the Sensuous. I actually have it right here. The Spell of the Sensuous. Wow. So it's David Abrams. And he's a, a phenomenologist. So he's a philosopher. But he went to, this was about, he went to, actually, he went to Bali, including Indonesia, to study oh. magic. That oh, is his wow. hobby of magic. And he wanted to say, wow. he, he began to explore the relations to what more than human. And, 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 you know, you can have things in different traditions. You can have like, you know, the belief in, like in, in, in Bali's notion of Hinduism, there's a kind of very relatedness to, to, to other, yeah. other species of living things. But he goes on to talk about this and he talks about language. He does actually indigenous language as embedded yeah. in place. Like language goes out from, the land that you walk, the materials, the type of plant yeah. life, the animals, everything, and, you know, so, so it's a really wonderful opening into the, the thinking about more than human, our, 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 our relatedness, but in a way we've turned away from our deep relations to the things around us. We, wow. We've abstracted notions of language. We extract practices of design. We, we strip them, literally. We extract them from the place where they are. And I think yeah. we lose a lot in doing that. So when we identify the uniqueness, the nomadic practice of design in the Netherlands versus nomadic practice of Sweden <laughs> versus Indonesia versus Thailand versus, you know, that's what we need to do. So cool. Um, I, yeah, th this, this is a subject where we can go on and on talking about yes. because it's, it's something I think about and it's something that will show up uh, uh, in the future on design discipline as well, this idea of, you know, design being tied to places. But uh, we are uh, at the end of our time that we booked yes. together. As you can see, it's actually getting quite late where I am. I've lost all of my light. Uh, literally, <laughs> my computer screen is the only light on my face right now. That's why it looks weird. Uh, but before we conclude, uh, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, yeah, so... Um... Twitter, at Ron Wakari. Right. Um, at Twitter, okay. Yeah, and then uh, on um, on the web at eds, eds dot siat, S-I-A-T dot S-F-U dot C-A. All right. I will uh, insert links and everything to but all then, the relevant places. Yeah, just places, Google. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's just Google Ron Wakari. Yeah, the good thing You're, is with the name, with the last name like Wakari, it's not like you're going to find many, you know. So, so. Is, it, is it an Indonesian name? It's an Indonesian name from Sulawesi, which is the oh, northern. Oh, okay. Uh, which is yeah, and and uh, yeah, and uh, yeah. wow, that's I have been meaning to ask you this for so long. The the origin of like what what does Wakari mean? Because I yeah, thought I it might be like native uh, Canadian or something. Yeah, no, you know, and, 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 and I don't know if it went through, I mean, there are, if you go to Sulawesi, you're going to find mm. a lot of Wakaris. Don't Google Wakari Sulawesi <laughs> because, or particularly <laughs> don't Google Wakari Manada, which is actually where my father is from because they're, right. they're just endless. Um, but, but, um, but, but outside, not very many. And I don't know if it sure. became, of course, it was a Dutch enclave sharing about the kind of last of the colonial errors. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, that the colonialism is over, but anyway, you know, in, in, in occupation. <laughs> so, so, um, uh, 
but I don't know that it was actually that way Europeanized. The spelling of it may be, mm. uh, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, finally, before we conclude, is there a question that I should have asked but haven't? Perhaps a question that only you in the world can answer? <laughs> you asked a lot of questions and you asked a pretty like <laughs> dense question. So I'm trying to think about what could you not have asked? I think you, you're, you're, you're one of those uh, interviewers that could actually sneak like 12 questions into one. So uh, I think you uh, it's left a no bad habit that I'm trying to overcome. <laughs> That's okay. They were complicated. Well, they were a little bit, but there was actually really well thought through questions I really appreciate. So no, no, no stone uncurrent here. I thank you. I've I've done my homework. I read the book. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, it was it was it was really cool. I mean, especially that like last uh, the later chapter about the biography and force and all the, those questions that define the identity of the designer. I think are useful for. Uh, you know, wherever you want to apply yourself, if you want to apply yourself to commercial practice or uh, uh, dedicating yourself to the service of a cause or to in, in academia or whatever, I think those questions are relevant. And I'm happy to have a list of them and, and the way of thinking about them in the form of this book. Um, thank you so much, Sharon. This was, this was so much fun. It, it was really nice to see you again. Yep. I hope to run into you again in real life also and uh, perhaps in other online conversations as well. Absolutely. Certainly open to that and I would love to hear you. Meet, meet you again and, and, and up for more discussion. And thanks for staying up so late. Uh, <laughs> no problem. That was episode 15 of Design Discipline, a conversation with Professor Ron Wakari. This was an original production by Design Discipline. Design Discipline is a community-supported institution for design research and creative empowerment. You can join our community and lend your support so we keep delivering productions like this to you, featuring conversations with creatives, scholars and leaders, as well as reference-grade resources covering design methods, case studies and research-based design insights. So go ahead and download and subscribe to our podcast, like and subscribe on our YouTube channel if you haven't already, Follow us on Twitter and Instagram as at Design Discipline and become a member on our website, designdiscipline.com, to access the next level of resources. My name is Mehmet Aydan Baytash, designer, engineer, scholar, founder and editor-in-chief at Design Discipline, and I hope you have a great time until we meet in the next episode.